Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Once upon a time, and they lived happily ever after, the end. These are words that many of us grew up on, the words of a teacher or a parent reading to us from a fairy tale, words which we enjoyed hearing because we knew of the pleasant ending they would likely bring to us. We had a high degree of confidence shaped by those words once upon a time in hearing them over and over again that the story would most likely end and they lived happily ever after, the end. <clears throat> Today we conclude another church year, those cycles of seasons and readings and observances that mark the passage of time as we await the Lord's return to complete His story. That's a story that we ought to enjoy hearing, one we should never grow tired of hearing over and over again either. That's because of the happiness, indeed even the sheer joy which it brings to us. However, the divine story does not begin once upon a time. It starts in Genesis with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It concludes in Revelation, not with, and they lived happily ever after, but rather with even more powerful words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The particular section or chapter of the story that we might entitle the life of Jesus is comprised of four interwoven storylines given to us by one divine author indeed, but uniquely recorded by human writers that God appointed for our benefit. Consider how each of these recordings begins. Them, begins. From the writer that was communicating the gospel to those who were looking for fulfillment of God's promises to their ancestors, it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the writer recording a succinct and fast-paced and hard-hitting account for those who were already familiar with the proclamation of the message of salvation and just needed to be reminded of the essential details, it reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From an eloquent and well-educated man, wanting to offer his readers a well-organized and comprehensive account of this important story, we read, inasmuch as many have undertaken to, complete, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And finally, from a man writing at a time when the church was already having to combat the heresy that Jesus was merely a well-intentioned human being who wanted to teach people nothing more than how to live moral and God-pleasing lives, the account begins with the following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Taken together, these accounts tell a story familiar to all of us. We know the many important implications of the happy ending of this story. That God's promises are fulfilled on the day of final resurrection. That one day Jesus will come back. That on the last day, everything will come to an end. That those who have died will have their physical bodies rise up and live again. That on this judgment day, those who have believed in Jesus Christ enter into the final glorious heavenly life forever with body and soul reunited. When we read this story, we see very clearly that it is not a fairy tale story. The story is very real. It has real people with real lives and real consequences. It involves criminals, bad guys, and flawed heroes. It also is a story that includes parts that we sometimes don't like to hear. The very real and the very bloody truth that an innocent man was crucified for the message which he preached. Oh, people did all they could to quiet him. But it wasn't easy quieting the message of Jesus Christ. They tried and they tried, but they could not quiet him. They attempted to find his errors in the law, showing how he violated it. But in the end, the only sure way they could come up with to quiet him was to kill him, to beat him, to strip him of his clothes and his dignity, to pound heavy iron nails through his body and make a public spectacle of his suffering and his bleeding and his suffocation. Even if we know nothing more about Jesus than that, we would know that we aren't hearing a fairy tale. At that point in the story, it certainly does not appear that this will end happily ever after. During Christ's crucifixion, we have heard that others were crucified along with him, two criminals. They were placed on either side of Jesus. Though these men are criminals, though Jesus is surrounded by those who persecute him, he still preaches and ministers to others until his dying breath. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Regardless that his own life is coming to an end, he still prays a prayer for them. Why? Why does he do this for them? They didn't ask him to pray. In fact, if you ask some of them, they will tell you that they don't need his prayers. The answer to why he prays for them is this. He prays because they are sinners and they are in need of forgiveness. That same prayer which Jesus prayed at the cross for the people of his time, he continues to pray for us as our intercessor with God today. He continues to pray to God our Father for our forgiveness. Even though, oh, even though we know that this story turns out well, we know how it goes, we still continue to sin. Truth be told, we revel in sin. You might even say that we adore sin by the way we return to it time and time again like smitten lovers. However, we were not meant to sin at all. We were not meant to revel in sin, much less adore it. But due to the fall, we became sinful human beings. And due to that sinfulness, we cannot help but drive ourselves away from God. We need that forgiveness whether we want to admit it or not. Jesus recognized the fact that those standing before him at his crucifixion needed forgiveness too. He knew that they, that we, that all people need forgiveness. 
And that is why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because of the sin they commit, they did not know what they were doing. They are ignorant in their actions, crucifying the Son of God. And even Jesus' followers were somewhat ignorant, not truly and fully understanding the identity of their Lord until after His resurrection. In ignorance of what true paradise was in the Garden of Eden, they too sin. In ignorance of who Jesus Christ is, they too crucify Him. And through all of this, Jesus prays for their forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the only thing which occurred at the cross, though. There was mockery also. Jesus was mocked. The Jewish leaders sneer at Him. They see Him as weak and pathetic, a fraud who claimed to be the Christ. Soldiers mock Jesus, too, having fun at His expense after stealing His only belongings, His clothing. They ridicule Him as the King of the Jews who cannot save Himself. The sign above Jesus' head mocks Him, too, to everyone passing by. And even one of the condemned criminals mocks Jesus, pointing to His claim of being the Christ and challenging Him to prove it by overturning the death sentence under which they were suffering and providing a rescue for the three of them. We, too, are mocked for who we are and for what others would prefer that we be. We are mocked for our beliefs, for our faith, we are mocked for going to church rather than sleeping in on Sunday mornings. We are mocked for not enjoying more of what the world has to offer. We are mocked for attending a Bible study, for reading and hearing and meditating upon God's Word rather than going out for a night on the town. Death, too, makes a mockery of us and our faith. The body stops breathing. The heart stops beating. Death mocks us. It torments us with its own confident certainty. Death tells us that this is all there is. However, we know that death is not all there is. When one of the criminals mocked Jesus, the other gave both a confession of his sin and a confession of Christ. We are being punished justly, he told him, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The one criminal recognized his own sinfulness and that Jesus was innocent of any accusations brought against him. If anyone was to be tried and punished for their crimes, both now and for eternity, it would be, it would be them, the criminals hanging on either side of Jesus. Yet the God-fearing criminal makes one request of the dying Lord. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal is broken and beaten. He sees himself as he truly is and as we truly are too. Lost. Condemned. The honest admission of his guilt leaves him with only one hope. He turns to Jesus and he sees more than a dying man. More than the blood and the agony. Others see a failed and fallen and false Messiah as the world would judge him. But this defeated helpless thief sees the true Messiah. His eyes look at Jesus in a moment of complete humiliation and utter torment. And in an act of faith, he places himself into the outstretched arms of Christ. He sees Jesus as the innocent one, the only one who can save him. He confesses Jesus as the King, 
someone who has a kingdom that he wants to live in. And in that moment, he receives more than he could possibly imagine. Jesus answers the criminal's request by granting him paradise. He turns all of the mockery of the soldiers and the Sanhedrin and the crowds and the sign above his head into a sign of truth for all believers. The king has spoken, and the criminal's request is granted. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. His happy ending is assured. On the cross, the criminal sees the sign above Jesus' head, and he believes it. The one who doesn't save himself saves others by his death. It's not that Jesus couldn't save himself as the mocker supposed, but that he wouldn't. He was compelled by love and obedience to the Father's will. He needed to take our punishment on the cross so that on the last day we would be judged innocent, free to enter his presence with body and soul rejoined together forever. The sign on the cross was meant to be one of ridicule, but it actually is a sign of truth. Jesus is the King. The King who saves us because He did not save Himself. Jesus bestows to us paradise from that cross. Because of that, we look forward to the day of fulfillment when He restores all of creation with the resurrection from the dead. Just as Jesus granted that criminal's request on the cross, He has provided the same gift to all of us through the waters of holy baptism. When we receive water with the Word of God, that too is God's promise of being remembered in His kingdom, of being granted paradise today and forever. That is the promise that we died with Him too. We have died to sin. We are reborn in Christ. We live these days as both crucified criminal and trusting believer, as sinner and saint until the days we die. And when we do die, we then receive the ultimate promise, paradise from God our Father through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our life story may not begin with the exact words, once upon a time. Yet we are born in a particular time. And at a particular time, we will depart from this life because our sin ensures that our temporal death will come. Along the way, there are good parts and there are bad parts. But we know the real ending of the story. The story ends just as the church year ends, with God's promise that we will, by His grace, live happily ever after because of those words which Jesus gives to all who trust in Him. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In His holy name, amen.